This is Movie Maker Interviews. I'm Eric Stoyer. Today on the show, I talk to Diane Paragas, the writer and director of the new film, Yellow Rose. In the film, we meet Rose, played by Eva Noblezada. She's a Filipina teenager in small town Texas who fell in love with country music as a little girl, and she now writes and plays her own country songs. Rose and her mother are undocumented immigrants, and when her mother is arrested and detained by ICE, Rose has to find a new home. She travels to Austin, where she begins to make her country music dreams come true. Yellow Rose is in theaters now. Diane Paragas, very happy to talk to you today. How are you? I'm awesome. Great to be here. How long have you had the story for Yellow Rose in your head? Um, and, and did you start with the character or the story first? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I would say it was the character, but I did have a full script over 15 years ago. Um, it is and it was very different than what ended up on the screen. And that's because of the times we live in. But it was definitely um, always a story about a girl who loved country music, who was separated from her mom because of immigration. That actually was always the premise of the film. So it kind of says something about that the immigration system has been broken for as long as it has, that that has, was always the storyline. Um, and really, I think the MacGuffin for the script was the scene where um, the, Rose gets separated from her mother and um, where the mother is kind of going into a prison system and, and Rose is going into this sort of no man's land. And each one, uh, although very different, is uh, kind of going into a prison. So that scene was kind of always in the script and, and stayed in the script. Um, other than that, it changed over the years in various ways. It was a road movie at one point. It was just, I mean, it's been so many things. Uh, but when, when I finally got the financing together and we were really kind of like hunkering down, uh, you know, we were in the midst of Trump's, you know, sort of attack on families. And that was just around the time people, kids were being put in cages. They still are. Um, and that's actually when we shot the film. So I definitely leaned more heavily into the idea of her looking for a home. And that kind of is, was sort of the basis of the film that, that ended up being Yellow Rose. Uh, the parts in the film where you show Rose's mother in the detention center were really affecting uh, I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen images of exactly what it would be like to be in one of those facilities. Mm. Uh, did you have to do a lot of prep work in order to make sure that those images were were right? Um, absolutely. So my background is documentary filmmaking. So in, in preparation for this film, I did quite a bit of research. I visited detention centers. I made a mini documentary where I interviewed families that were actually separated. Um, and Almost everything you see in the film was verbatim from interviews, first person interviews that I did with actual families. Um, it, I, there's a good story. This is, you know, a classic independent film story is um, when I first started writing the script and doing those interviews, um, when I visited the detention centers, they had these cots, just like cots lined up in a gym room. And so in the script, I wrote it as that, but we didn't have the budget to afford like 20 cots. <laughs> so we could afford three cots. So we we're trying to figure out all these ways. And then my production designer runs up to me and just opens the newspaper to this picture of people with mylar sheets, which is so much more horrifying because they're on the ground stacked on top of each other, 
like sardines. So we literally ripped it out of the headlines and it's so much more tragic and horrible and oddly sort of beautiful in a way, in a horrifying way, but it is, that image just is, is straight out of a picture from a, a detention center in El Paso. Let's back up a little bit and, and uh, I'd like to hear about your history and how you made a career in filmmaking. Um, I'm one of those people who didn't go to film school, um, really because there just wasn't a lot of women going into film school at that time in my you know, college life. I definitely was film studies, so I studied movies um, as part of my degree, but I, I didn't go into production until later. Uh, so I, I, uh, I, I was at an advertising agency and I kind of convinced them to let me be the agency producer. And I hired this company in New York called You Direct, where they let you direct, the agency producers direct. And I said, look, I'm going to hire the, you if you just teach me how to direct. And that's how my film school was like on the job. And then I went on to, you know, do other things. And um, I uh, sort of started in television and um, at MTV. And then I had my own production company and I made docs. But all the while I was writing scripts like this, just couldn't get them financed just because everyone were saying no to a story of a Filipino protagonist who wants to be a country singer. Nobody wanted to make that movie. So I just sort of put it aside for a couple of years, got better to, as a director. And then a few years ago, I really sort of like hunkered down and really said, I'm going to make this movie. What's your relationship with country music? Were you a fan growing up like Rose? I, um, I was not. Um, and I grew up in Texas, though. I grew up in Lubbock, Texas. That's where I grew up. But um, we just cleared out uh, my old house recently, about two, uh, you know, earlier this year. And I got my old record collection back, my old vinyl collection. And sure enough, there was Patsy Cline and Johnny Cash, like the old school stuff was in there. So I definitely was listening to it. But most of it was Joy Division, The Clash, you know, I had a shaved head. I was in a band. Um, but to me, it was like, if I flipped that experience of feeling isolated, and I thought if the character kind of leaned into the love of Texas, it would just be a better protagonist and, you know, metaphoric, of course. Uh, one of my favorite little moments in the film is when Rose is going through her records. Yeah. They're, they're, they're dusty and the jackets are worn worn down um you you see a few of the records in her collection you see what they are but I, i'm wondering if you if you thought a lot about the the records that she would own and uh you had a, a collection in mind for her oh yeah for sure i made a playlist of music and she definitely listened to the sort of old school music that i love and the fact that she is a vinyl listener she's an old soul and i wanted that to come across instantly and that she, you know, her hero is Towns Van Zandt, who, in, I mean, for music nerds, they're like, okay, she's legit, you know? And, and I wanted to establish that early on because I'm a music nerd. So, you, you, you know, we know, we know when it's legit or not legit. And, and that's the thing. It's like most really hardcore music heads, they do like country, a certain kind of country. Um, it's like universally, everyone has a Johnny Cash album. Every, you know, it's just like, there's certain artists that are, universally loved and and I and I I definitely wanted her to be of that mindset that she's a real musician she's not a pop star uh, self-consciousness is a big theme in the film for Rose especially 
Uh, where do, what, what do you think her doubt stems from? Well, there's a great scene in the beginning where she's sort of pulling her eyes open in the mirror. And that's something I did when I was growing up. And so many other young Asian women come up to me and say, thank you for putting that scene in because we all did it. I mean, literally, either figuratively or imaginary, we were like, why do I have these eyes? Why do I have this skin? You know, and it's, it's the holding, it's that that stops her. And she knows that uh, it stops her. One thing I, I hope it comes across in the movie, she's not someone who has a doubt of her talent. I think she knows she has talent. It's she has a doubt and a lack of confidence in the world, uh, not herself. Rose uh, and Priscilla, her mother in the film, uh, these, are, these are characters that, uh, that film audiences don't see very often, uh, but the characters feel extremely relatable. Uh, Rose feels just like someone you know or that you'd want to know. And um, did, did you feel more pressure than some filmmakers might to represent these characters in a way that does feel so relatable because there's so little representation of characters like them out there? Absolutely. I mean... I would say my primary goal was to make a film that felt authentic to Filipino Americans and to undocumented people. Like that was my goal. I wanted to make sure that they felt truly represented. And, um, and the only way you can really do that is to just be super specific <laughs> and, um, and to just draw upon my own experiences and the experiences of my imagined character um, and the more nuance and the more details, I think the more relatable it is. There are just little things that Filipinos will recognize, like the plastic on the furniture. There's like aluminum foil behind the, behind the, the stove. Um, just little trinkets of very little things peppered throughout the scenes that you just know that's Filipino. And the other thing... Um, to that point was I purposely didn't subtitle. Um, I didn't subtitle any of the Tagalog because one, I wanted the audience not to feel alienated. So it, it, as much as I wanted to feel true to my own community, I didn't want to alienate these characters from the audience. And the minute you subtitle something, it's foreign and it's other and you disconnect from the story. Um, but for the Filipino community, it's like that little bit of an Easter egg and a, a gift for them because they kind of know what the songs mean and what they're saying. But if you don't speak Tagalog, you also understand, you know, spiritually what it means and, and what's happening. So um, that was kind of intentional. Eva Noblezada, who plays Rose, she is just terrific on screen and also an awesome singer. She's oh my God. Wonderful. So, so amazing. Uh, where, where did you first become familiar with her? So when I, 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 I like many independent films did a short film proof of concept before we did the feature. And when I was casting for that, Eva had just become cast to be Miss Saigon in the revival of Miss Saigon on a, in London on the West end. And um, I was like, Oh no. Cause she would, you know, she was, I could already tell she would be perfect. She came from North Carolina. She's a real musician. So um, I did cast an amazing young singer uh, called Thea McGee, who, who ended up writing um, Square Peg, which is the main uh, song in our film, along with myself and Dale Watson. And then years later, when we got financing, I heard that Eva and the 
play were kind of coming to an end. So I went to go see her on Broadway. I sent her manager the script and I had dinner with her that night and she blew me out of the water. Um, you know, what I was looking for is that sometimes stage actors don't translate and I knew she had never done a film, not even a short before, but there was something very cinematic in her style of acting. Um, and when we started shooting and we thought even more, um, she told me that the reason that she's very comfortable in this setting is she, she didn't go to acting school for theater. She actually taught herself how to act by watching movies. So she would record scenes from her favorite movies and study them and then perform them, memorize the monologues, perform them in the mirror and try to figure out what was Kate Winslet doing in that scene and sense and sensibility that made me cry. And she would practice this way. So she was cinematic, it made sense. She learned in that way, on top of the fact that she's incredibly intuitive um, as a performer and beyond just her pure technical singing ability, what makes her voice so incredible is the expression. I mean, she emotes every, you know, every phrase, every syllable of a song can feel what she's feeling. And that's a very special gift beyond just having pipes. <laughs> and then one of your other main characters is Dale Watson, the country musician, uh, playing himself in the film. Did you have him or someone like him in mind from the start? Did, did you always know that you wanted to have a real performer playing themselves in the film? Definitely. I definitely wanted a real performer. I definitely knew my idea was I would cast real musicians and we would write the music in our characters, which is basically what happened. Um, but I wrote a character called Jimmy Redburn, which was uh, not Dale Watson. And when I met Dale Watson, not only was he Jimmy Redburn, he was more, he was Dale Watson. And frankly, it began because we had no budget for, we had a very small budget for the short and we wanted to use his bus. And it had a huge Dale Watson on the side. And when we got the money to figure out either how to paint it out in post or it was just too much. And I was like, why don't you just be Dale Watson? And also it helped because we could use his own music and his own story. And that really is his house. That really is the recording studio that's on his property. And that is where we recorded the songs. Um, and those scenes in the movie were our recording sessions. Um, so it's it's just all was very organic. We had 19 days to shoot this movie. So, you know, having real locations and the authenticity of real people and was what made us make our days. And also I think give it a kind of grounded feeling, which I was going for. Can you talk a little bit more about the songs in the film? Um, who was involved in writing them how, and how did they come together? The songs were written over a couple of years in between us doing the short and the feature. So Square Peg and I Ain't Going Down were the two songs featured in my short, um, which we wrote on set uh, for the short. Um, and they were just so great. They just became part of the script. Um, and then through the years of waiting for the money to come in, Dale was kind of writing music that uh, knowing that we were going to make the, the feature so a couple of the songs, like Circumstance, he wrote on the road by himself um, based on pages I would give him. And he's like, oh, this would kind of be here. And, um, and there's another song called Yellow Rose, which you only hear as an instrumental, but the full song with lyrics is on the soundtrack. Um, 
And then there were a few songs we wrote while on set with Eva. So there's a song she sings called Loving Something That Don't Love Back. She was writing that song and she really was frustrated writing that song because I, I tasked her to write a song uh, during production and she actually didn't finish it. Like in the movie, she didn't finish it in the movie and she didn't finish it in real life. And so I was like, oh no, we're down a song. So I, I wrote a song uh, while we were on set called Quietly Into the Night, which is in the film as well. Um, and I was writing that throughout um, the film and, and also just feeling the sort of present, the world we created in a real way. And that, that really affected me to the point where I just had this song that wanted to come out of me. So it's kind of a, a, an ode to Dylan Thomas slash... Willie Nelson. <laughs> what was post-production like? You, uh, you had a pretty accelerated shooting schedule and you said you've had the uh, story in your head for, for years. Uh, what was it like putting it all together once you'd, once you'd shot everything? It took a long time to put it together. I think, um, you know, they say you make the movie three times when you write it, when you shoot it and when you cut it. I mean, in our case, our initial cut was like two and a half hours long with complete scenes, fully cut, not even string, it's just like a really cut film. And to try to cull what is now the film out of that was actually quite difficult. Also, like all independent films, we're against a timeline of trying to get it into Sundance, which we did not finish in time. We sent in the long cut that was incomprehensible. Um, so in a way that was good because we gave ourselves permission to really like hunker down and and figure out the story. But a lot of it ironically was taking out the more sort of heavy handed politics that I had written into the script. There were a lot of scenes of down with Whitey and, you know, you guys go back to where you came from and, you know, all this stuff. And I just felt like it was too on the nose and also a low hanging fruit, which is interesting because I think I've gotten some bit of pushback because I didn't include stuff like that. So you can't win it all. But I think in the end of the day, what I think came out of the edit was the message of empathy. Um, and in order to really win that, I think I wanted to sort of remove as much of the political distractions from the story of the humanity of this woman and her condition. And to me, it's more powerful without all that stuff. We, are, we hear that stuff every day. You know, it's not, I don't think it's needed. And I, and, and I always get annoyed too in films when it just turns into a polemic, even when it's my own politics, which it is most of the time, I don't want to be preached to. Even my own, I believe in it, I don't want to hear that. So that's another thing that kind of affected me. What's it like to be putting a film out, especially one that's coming out in theaters uh, during the pandemic? Um, it's not fun, but it's exciting at the same time. I mean, it's no, it's just like, who knows what's going on and who knows who's going to come out to the theaters. And, um, you know, you, for, for this film in particular that took me decades to make, um, you dream of the day you have a theatrical release and no, in no way, shape or form did I ever imagine it would be during a global pandemic when people are afraid to go to the theaters. Having said that, I'm really proud that we are um, going to be in theaters and that this movie and Sony Pictures is doing its small part to try to contribute to the, you know, the salvation of a dying 
industry. It's really suffering right now. So whatever we can do to support that. I grew up watching movies in a dark room with a bunch of people. And that is how I've always felt movies should be appreciated. Um, so, you know, it's a mixed bag, but I, like I said, I'm, I'm grateful that we can be supporting theaters and the theatrical experience for what it's worth. It's a really lovely film. And if you've, uh, if you've been to that part of Texas before, you really recognize that it's represented so beautifully. Um, who, who was involved in making the film look the way it looks? Oh, thank you. I, I'm so glad I get to talk about this, but um, yes, my, my cinematographer, his name's August Thurmer. Um, he and I really kind of sat down and I said, you know, I want to make a modern day Western and I want to use anamorphic lenses. I want to use vintage lenses. I want it to feel kind of gritty. We, we used a lot of angles from uh, John Ford, the searchers, you know, when she steps into frame, it's the low angle where you see her from the sky. And anytime she does something heroic or going to a new situation, you, you'll see that shot again. And then of course you can recognize the big wide open spaces of them in the hay field and her walking along, even the suburban parts of Austin, I wanted it to look like this sort of landscapey kind of feeling. Um, and for the interior scenes, I really looked to Wong Kar Wai. We used all, almost all practical um, lights and the sort of like neon colored lights of the bar. And, and that's what lights a honky tonk um, are a lot of what we use. We, we were very minimal in our interior lighting and we shot every exterior uh, and magic hour or sun up <laughs> to get that, which was difficult in the 19 day shoot, um, but we did it. Uh, so yeah, I wanted the film to have this sort of like faded memory feeling, even though it's present day. That's the tone and feeling of the kind of music that we were championing is this dusty, nostalgic. It's also how I remember Texas from my from my you know New York memory. I, that's how I remember it, and and I wanted it to have a very timely yet timeless feeling. If that makes sense. What do you think the film has to say about Texas? Uh, there's, there's a lot of pain portrayed in the film, but there's, there's also a lot of joy. And, 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 and in a lot of ways, it feels like a love letter to Texas. Absolutely. I, uh, it is a love letter to Texas. Absolutely, it's a love letter to Texas. And in the larger sense, the America that um, I feel we don't see anymore in this sort of polarizing world that has been set up for us. Um, I experienced a lot of racism I during growing up, but I also had in equal measure support and appreciation and champions and allies. And, um, you know, Jose Antonio Vargas, uh, who um, was a consultant on the film and is kind of a face of immigration and the undocumented, um, talks in his memoir about his allies and who were ostensibly white, let's be honest, you know, and they, Kind of helped him and um it's funny that that's actually getting a bit of criticism that i actually focused in on that um but to me it's it's a good thing to show and i think a lot of conservative people have watched this movie and liked it and had a different opinion and told me so of their opinion of immigrants and to me that is amazing and that is incredible if this film can do that. Um, and I think it's because there is a certain level of 
not demonizing, you know, um, the bad guys are systemic. And I didn't show a lot of the faces of the ICE officers. They're in shadow or you don't see them because it's a systemic problem in a world that is basically gentle, at least in this story. But I think that's Texas. I do think that's what, I think Texas is a very harsh place. It's a very racist place, but it's also a very warm place. And in the middle of all that swirl of shit is this film. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to show that. You mentioned a much longer original cut of the film. Uh, what's something from that edit that you would have liked to have kept in, but just didn't work out? Yeah, I, you know, there's a long scene when Rose reunites with her mother and it was a very kind of, it's almost like a play. It was in, it was very much like a play and uh, it was in different parts. And I know for Princess, it was her favorite scene who plays the mother. Um, and it was probably, you know, just, it was one of the best written scenes I think I had done, um, but it just did not, like I said before, it just didn't fit and I didn't, the focus would be that, and that wasn't the point. Um, there was a lot of additional scenes we shot in the detention center, um, which uh, kind of showed that experience more. There were quite a few scenes actually we, we cut just to see what the mother's life was like. Um, and in the longer cut, it was great, but it was also a distraction. So you were kind of like, what story are we following? And, and I think not seeing her for huge chunks of time added to the absence and to the longing uh, for Rose. So um, although it was interesting and tragic, it just, we cut those out. And then there's a whole storyline with Dale, which we cut, where he's great, um, but we kind of learn more about what his deal is. And so, you know, it was just sort of, uh, I wanted to just tell this whole world, I think, in a script. And in the end, it's Rose's story. And we have to be right there with her. Uh, and that's it. And, um, and that's what we decided on. Diane Paragas, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, good luck with your new film, Yellow Rose, which is out in theaters now. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to Movie Maker Interviews. You can check us out online at moviemaker.com, where every day we post stories about films and filmmaking and filmmakers. That's also a great place to subscribe to Movie Maker's print magazine. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, at MovieMakerMag. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And we appreciate very much when you do that. We'll be back soon with another episode of Movie Maker Interviews, and we hope you will be there to join us. Until then, take care of yourselves. <laughs>